Well, welcome to 2022, everybody. This is the Professor and the Hack. We're back at it, episode 112. Peter Van Onselen, of course, is the Professor. Happy New Year to you, Peter. Yeah, Happy New Year to you too, Hugh. Did you get a break at all? Got a slight break, and uh, so far we've managed to avoid COVID in our own household, which we're happy about. Yeah, well, ditto on our front. So, uh, so at the moment, I'll take that as a for now. Hopefully, it stays that way, though. Uh, we've got the great advantage in my household of having my wife, who is super efficient at dealing with bureaucracy. So she does the work on the runaround to get uh, booster shots for herself, find places that will give booster shots for herself and for me. So I've had my booster, and she has too. But also to find a place for my now 10-year-old to get her first vaccine. I saw that. You posted that, did you not? Uh, on Twitter, I saw it. I did. I posted a little picture of my happy little Holly. Yeah. But that that was difficult, you know, because the, the original timings to get a booster for a 10-year-old were going to, the, the first ones we were able to find were actually going to be after school resumed. And this goes to some of the issues that, that governments are dealing with at the moment is that getting the shots, getting the pediatric one-third strength shots are hard to find. Mm. Getting booster shots has been hard to find. Getting PCR testing opportunities is hard to find. Getting rat testing kits is almost bloody impossible. <laughs> How did it all go so bloody pear-shaped? Yeah, look, it's a, it's, it is a mess. There's no two ways uh, about that. I mean, my, my kids are 13 and 15. And they've both already had their shots. They can't, they're not eligible for boosters yet. They would be if they lived in the US, is my understanding. But the Australian government's still looking into that. But they've got their shots. Uh, and and for our part, uh, Ainsley and I, we only got our boosters the other day. Uh, having had them cancelled, actually, we're about five and a half months in. So not at the original six-month mark, but certainly well past the, the now four-month, I think it is, and it'll be reduced to three soon. But we were booked in. That's the earliest we could get with our GP. And then we were told by the GP a couple of days out from being due to get it that it was cancelled. So we went to one of the state vax hubs, which was actually once you got there and once you could work your way through where you could go or should go and all the rest of it, it was pretty efficient actually, uh, badly signposted. I don't blame the local health workers for that. I just feel like there's a lack of sort of governmental oversight here in, in the way this is getting run. But it was a bit of a schmozzle in, in large part, but we got there in the end. How did it come to this? I mean, the hard part about that for me is that, look, operationally, these sort of things are always to some extent going to be difficult and there will always be some issues along the way. The problem for me is it feels like things running smoothly is the exception, not the norm. And this far into the pandemic with the previous problems around the vaccine stroll out, you would have thought they would be well ahead of the curve on organisation for boosters, uh, as well as these rapid antigen tests. I mean, let's not forget, it was an Australian company that was leading the charge internationally when it came to distributing rapid antigen tests around the world, yet we weren't collecting them and we weren't using them. And now suddenly we need them and they've replaced the traditional tests, the PCR tests and all the rest of it. But no, you know, they're still bloody hard to get and where you can get them, they're not free other than for some groupings. And where you can get them, uh, price gouging means that they're bloody expensive anyway. So the whole thing has become a schmozzle. And, and I have to say, I, I don't like to be so negative about it because I do give the government a bit of rope dealing with the multitude of issues that they are. But I don't think the problems here can be justified on that basis. I do think that there are failures that should have been better managed and should have been prepared better for and avoided 
that haven't been. So this is not a case of just carping at the government. I think there are legitimate criticisms to be had. What do you think? Well, I'm happy to carp at the government, to be perfectly honest. Uh, um, <laughs> and it's coloured for me a little bit by uh, a colleague of mine who got COVID, as did her partner, and both of them needed PCR tests. They had to go while feverish and feeling unwell to stand for an extended period of time in the heat to get a PCR test. Before they got the test, they were so sorry, we're all done. We can't do any more. Go home. We'll have another go tomorrow. And then fronting up again the next day by this stage feeling worse. And also, as it turned out, you know, highly infectious COVID patients to get it confirmed that they had COVID. Yeah, of course. You know, at the, the prime minister saying initially that rapid antigen tests were a matter for the states to organize, looking nice and smug, their problem, you deal with it. He's backflipped on that just in the last 36 hours or so, as well he should, and now has ordered up some emergency supplies of rapid antigen tests. We've got a, an absolute brewing disaster happening in aged care mm. where staff are unable to turn up. There are all kinds of dire warnings about the number of aged care centres into which the new strain is, is getting and the difficulties there for the proper care of the aged in an industry, industry is perhaps the wrong word, but a, a sector of the community which before COVID was already a disaster subject to a royal commission, the findings of which have not been enacted as yet. So you had a a, a dysfunctional area about the most vulnerable Australians other than probably neonatal intensive care babies are the, are the advanced age in care and the system is failing them again. I, I just can't help the feeling that at every turn, no matter how much slack you cut Scott Morrison, he is always a day late and a dollar short. You know, that's just the sense I have of the man. Yeah, and, and, and you know, <laughs> with, with a slightly more brutal edge, you're saying something similar to me. You know, it is, it is well past, is your point, well, well past the point of being able to have a level of slack cut for the government uh, because it just seems to be happening time and time again. Here's another factor to throw into the mix on this, and I don't mean this to target Greg Hunt for criticism, but let's not forget, we have a health minister who is retiring at the next election. Now, I'm not suggesting he's not given his all until then, but it is a point worth noting that you have a health minister on the way out. We don't know yet who the new health minister is going to be. There have been previous problems in this sector, to say the least, particularly, as you mentioned, in aged care, which he's essentially taken control of since Colbeck, the disaster of a minister that he was, had his portfolio reallocated and so forth to some extent. Uh, we don't know who the new health minister will be. Now, this will presumably be a big issue at the election. The government wants to focus on the economy, but the pandemic and, and the health fallout from it will be part and parcel with the election campaign, big issues. Uh, and we don't know who Scott Morrison yet will be proposing as the health minister at the other side of the election, assuming that he even wins. Yeah, it's important, isn't it? Because let's, let's assume we're still, hopefully the, the peak of this Omicron will have passed by the time the election comes. However, it has been pointed out that there was five months gap between the Delta strain and the Omicron strain. We've got time for another bloody strain to come and hit us yep. by the time we're into an election in May. And one that's not only more infectious like Omicron is compared to Delta, but unlike Omicron compared to Delta, one that might be more deadly as well. All of those issues. And, and, and then it goes to your question, which I think is a really important point, just about the management of a pandemic as you say, Greg Hunt retiring, 
let's say the coalition wins the election, there's still going to be that hiatus before we have a new health minister, presumably someone senior and competent already in a senior portfolio. They know what they're doing, and you wouldn't want to hand this over to someone who didn't know what they're doing. You've got to look around on the coalition benches. Who is the talent who's going to carry it forward? I don't know who that person is, but they, they might have to deal with a pandemic. So there, there are only two possibilities that's election. We either have a Labour government come in, in which case there is that inevitable handover to getting up to speed for a new minister in a pandemic period, or alternatively, the Morrison government gets returned, and then you have to find a new health minister. So in the middle of this year, we just have to hope that we're not in a period where the pandemic is you know, throwing up new challenges for us. Well, that's exactly right. And uh, (laughs) it's interesting when you make the point about it'll need to be somebody competent taking over as health minister. I mean, for all the criticisms that Greg Hunt gets, he has always struck me as amongst the choices on offer in the coalition, one of the more competent, you know, there's plenty of things about him that you might determine are irritating or or unlikable uh, about the way that he conducts himself from time to time. But I think on the competency stakes uh, as a comparative measure, uh, he's one of the more competent cabinet ministers. I don't know. No, no one springs immediately to mind, would be the way to put it, of who would be a competent alternative that I would uh, rest a little easier knowing was the incoming health minister, to be honest. I, I literally don't have a name at the top of my tongue. <laughs> Do you? No. <laughs> no, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, you know, you look at senior ministers, guys like Dutton, you know, Angus Taylor. Um, you've got people like Karen Andrews. Well, well, f- well for, for God's sakes, rule out Angus Taylor. Yeah. Peter Dutton is a, is a sort of hard man, head kicker of the government that I could, you know, were I a sort of leader with him as one of my lieutenants, I could see a certain purpose behind becoming the health minister doesn't fall into that category. So Yeah, well, he was previously a health, you know, he previously held the shadow portfolio. So he did. one hopes he spent some time studying what it might involve. Yeah, but but even then, I mean, politically speaking, that was when he he was um, he was one of the architects, was he not, of one of their policy scripts that they came up with about GP charging, which fell flat. I think that was even in government. Was he briefly the health minister? Anyway, it doesn't matter. The, the point is, I don't think he's sort of fit for purpose without that being a broader question of his competency in other areas. Certainly, politically, as a as a as a hit man, if you like, a political hit person. Angus Taylor, no thanks. Uh, you mentioned Karen Andrews. I mean, I. I wouldn't describe her as incompetent, but I haven't seen anything that sort of fills me with certainty about the way that she would perform in the role. Josh Frydenberg's not giving up Treasury, even if you assume that he's competent. Simon Birmingham's only just been made the finance minister. He strikes me as a pretty competent fellow, but I have no sense of what he'd be like in a social policy sense taking over health. Linda Reynolds runs the NDIS, but she's, of course, had all those fallout problems around the Brittany Higgins saga, so she's not even going to be considered, you wouldn't think. I mean, where do we turn? Alan Tudge, he's not even on the front bench at the moment, is he? He's still waiting the outcome of, of that investigation. Yes. Well, I'm sure they'll come up with some genius we haven't thought of. Probably go to Birmingham because he's a safe pair of hands. Well, jokes aside, Birmingham's the only one amongst that list that I do sort of think to myself, okay, if Simon Birmingham was announced, there would be no dread in, in my feelings. Let's put it that way. Um, but but I, I, I can't think of an alternative to that. So maybe you're right. Uh, maybe that's, that lands it on, uh, on, on his shoulders. They've got to win an election first. And uh, right now, I mean, it's curious to know, you know, because we don't really have any signals. There's no particular polling. We're still in basically the summer break. 
how are people perceiving? Yeah. Can, can I just jump in here? You make me think as you say that about uh, yeah, they've got to win an election first. It's interesting because I think he will have to say who his next health minister will be before the election. I mean, I, I remember Labor getting into this sort of problem in 2013. I think it was John Faulkner on his way out and Kevin Rudd was under pressure to say who would replace him in his role. And I think there were some others as well. Scott Morrison, if not on the campaign trail before it, will have to tell us who the next health minister will be. But that thing just creates a cascading effect if it doesn't come into force. So let's assume, for example, he's trying to win an election on the economy. He's forced to tell us who the health minister is because Anthony Albanese, as well as the media, are saying, well, hang on, you want to be returned as a government, you can't even tell us who it is. He announces Simon Birmingham. Then it's like, okay, well, who's your next finance minister then? You're telling us the economy's front and centre. And, and on we go and on we go. It's a, it, it's a difficult situation for an incumbent uh, or for any leader to not be able to, to have a key portfolio retirement going into an election. And that's what Greg Hunt is. Yeah, good point. And uh, one of the things we've got to see about Karen Andrews is will she have any paint knocked off as the Home Affairs Minister at the time of the Novak Djokovic disaster coming through mm. with a federal court judge really um, being less than kind, I suppose, or perhaps just being accurate in the judgment as to how incompetent that process was of managing it, quite apart from Djokovic's you know, all the other things that he's done wrong and that he's now conceded he's done wrong, it, you know, the, the border force didn't come out of that all that well. Oh, that's for sure. I mean, look, by the time people are listening to this, there may well be a decision on, on Djokovic's visa by Alex Hawke as immigration minister. I'll be surprised if he doesn't get deported. So, you know, that might be mud all over my face as people are listening to this, if that's not the case. The reason I say that is because I've done a straw poll. I tweeted this, actually. Done a straw poll of political insiders on both sides of parliament at all different levels of government and opposition and, and everything in between, not a single one of them thinks that Alex Hawke will do anything other than revoke that visa, which would suggest that Djokovic won't be playing at the Australian Open. And, and that, that, that will probably, to some extent, be a popular decision. It'll polarise, but it'll probably be popular. And, and some of what's come out about Djokovic, I think, around the forms being incorrectly filled out, the trip to Spain, being COVID-riddled and, and hanging out with kids for photograph opportunities and being interviewed by journalists, and all of that is a shame on him quite apart from what you do or don't think about his anti-vax stance more generally. But yes, when it comes to border force, one of the biggest reasons I think that the Federal Circuit Court judge uh, did what he did was because border force stuffed up, and in particular in that uh, you know denial of various procedural fairness rights for Djokovic around the way that he was questioned and dealt with in those early hours of the morning when his plane landed close to midnight and he was there for hours thereafter, his treatment at that point in time. Now, and yeah, look at one level, that's not, you know, the, the minister's direct responsibility, it's her indirect responsibility as the presiding minister, uh, but it was messy. Whatever way you cover it, wasn't it, Hugh? You know, the, the prime minister tweeting about it, talking about it at press conferences, you know, putting the heat on border force, they then act. Um, but there's a problem, the judge calls it out, and now you've got the minister having to decide whether he acts separately anyway. In a sense, they've been thrown a little bit of a political lifeline if they choose to be harsh on Djokovic and kick him out by virtue of some of these revelations that I mentioned around Spain and kids and, and all the rest of it. Yes, his own admissions have certainly made it much easier for them to, to kick him out. But I guess the point that goes in people's minds, or at least many people's minds, perhaps they're not coalition voters anyway, is that if this is how Border Force will deal with a multimillionaire with a global profile, an entire country behind him, and probably social media followers running into the hundreds of thousands, if not millions, you know, how overbearing and cruel how willing are they to breach normal process when it comes to having some hapless 
asylum seeker turn up here, no matter what their rights are under law. I think that's the thing. It's really brought back the the malevolent element of our strong borders policy into the minds of many voters. Oh, and has it what? And, uh, you know, I mean, we interviewed an asylum seeker on the project uh, who was in the same hotel and he'd been in incarceration in one form or another, onshore or offshore, since his arrival at the age of 15 for going on nine years and it was his 24th birthday. Absolutely despicable. And I, I can't shout this enough having, you know, looked into it more than having previously only given it some cursory glance to my shame. You know, this is somebody who, and there are hundreds of others, by the way, who are genuine refugees, as determined by the United Nations, who are being used as a form of reverse bait. You know, this is the equivalent of medieval times, heads on spikes at the city gates to be a deterrent to other people to have the temerity of coming here by boat. And even if you think that that's, there's something good in that in terms of stopping deaths at sea or whatever it might be, it is still a disgusting practice to use humans as a form of reverse bait like that. Let them suffer in incarceration year after year after year for the purpose of a deterrent in our border policies. Now, if any good comes out of this Novak Djokovic saga, please, oh, please let it be that the awareness on this, including amongst us journalists, stays high and that we don't let it just fade from view. Because, I mean, I'm ashamed to say, Hugh, I used to write a lot about border protection in the lead up to Abba getting in power and then over his first few years. I'm a bleeding heart on the subject. I've got real issues with our policies. But, you know, because he did stop the boats and because Labor sort of crab walked closer and closer to the Liberals' policy on this, I sort of stopped doing so. Uh, and that, that's to my shame because, you know, the, the atrocities being committed to these individuals didn't go away just because the public focus did. And it's to the shame of all Australians, quite frankly, because we seem as a country to have accepted politically that that's a bipartisan shame uh, and it shouldn't be. Yeah, here, Peter. Let's take a quick break. Much more to discuss, including the Republic, back in just a moment. This is uh, The Professor and the Hack. I'm the Hack, Hugh Rimmington, and with me is the uh, Professor Peter Van Onselen, as always. And uh, Peter, we've seen the new model being offered up by Peter Fitzsimons and the Republican movements that uh, they think will win over Australians for that great constitutional shift, other than the voice to parliament for Indigenous Australians, and that being uh, a republic. What do you make of it? Well, yeah, let, let me turn that on you, if I can, just to start. I mean, you're, you're a little bit older than me, uh, yeah, a little bit closer to Mr. Fitzsimmons' age. Uh, and and is this just a baby boomer thing, I guess, is my question. <laughs> is this something that younger generations, which I would love to throw myself in, but I think I sit somewhere between them and the slightly older than me generation that are, that are avid Republicans. I'm not sure that they care. I care. I'm a Republican. Well, it's, it's funny because that reverses the notion, which was certainly around in 1999 when this was first put up, that young Australians were keen to get rid of the connections to the crown and wanted to stand on us our feet. And it was the more conservative, the olders, those more traditional in their views who, who didn't want to, you know, make that break with the monarchy. <laughs> or at least couldn't agree, more to the point, couldn't agree on a model by which they hoped to make a break with the monarchy. 
So um, I am deeply conscious that there is an entire political generation has passed since the referendum of 1999. And even those who, you know, who were around at that time, probably they're at creaky, understandably, on some of the arguments around the constitutional advantages and disadvantages. I do feel it's going to be, it's going to become more proximate for us anyway, because I think that a court in, in New York has said that um, Prince Andrew will have to front up in court against his accuser. That is going to be horrendous for the royal family. The, you know, the, the, the very real allegations being dredged out, it would seem with some merit behind them that he was a man who was engaged in sex with underage girls as a kind of a, you know, it's a crime. Mm. And this goes right to the royal family. The fact that the queen herself is, is aging, she's magnificent at her age, and God bless her, but the sense of relevance to Australia may, may diminish, one would expect, with her passing, I suspect, because she's so well admired. But then you come to the actual model, and this has always been the difficulty. Let's say that you could get, as you could late last century, an agreement by most people that it was time to move on from the ties to the monarchy. It really split on the question of what was going to be the model. And I've got deep concerns about it. I'm not sure the Republican movement's model that they fronted up is the right one. Mm. In fact, I'm fairly confident it's not. And this is the real problem for me, because the one thing about having the monarchy there in our constitution is that the Queen has no interest. We've never had a monarch showing any particular interest in Australia. And that is a good thing if you take aside the dismissal example. And even then, they were pretty much hands off on that. Whereas if you have an elected president they must necessarily be more involved in the day-to-day -day politics and more a rival in power to the prime minister, even if the original intentions are not that. That's the danger that somewhere down the track we're going to wind up with something which is much more unstable, much more South American-looking than what we've enjoyed to date. Yeah, look, it's really interesting to me. I mean, look, going back to the the, the original referendum on this, I, I, I was in my early 20s at the time, and I, I actually handed out for the no campaign based on what I thought at that stage was my sort of political science concern about the model and, you know, if it ain't broke, don't fix it and all this sort of stuff. I look back now and see that as the missed opportunity that I remember people like Malcolm Turnbull saying it was, uh, and I don't share anywhere near the concerns being a little bit older that I did then about the model. In fact, back then I was a little bit more radical on the model, I think, I, I hadn't, without thinking through it in, in much detail. I quite like the idea of a massive revamp of the Australian constitution, which could involve an elected president, but not just electing a president under our current constitutional structures of, of how our parliament currently operates. So possibly a complete rewrite. Now I have more concerns about that, as it sounds like you do, Hugh, because I can see all the, all the myriad of problems attached to that, which we see around the world. Presidential systems don't really work well anywhere arguably including the United States increasingly with how we know they've gone lately. Whereas, of course, for many years, the chief democracy around the world able to export its system of democracy was, of course, always the United States, which meant that we ended up with more presidential than prime ministerial systems, and that was its own problem. I'm relaxed uh, to some extent about the model uh, of, of what a governor general, call them a prime minister, call them a president, if you like, how they get elected, whether it's two-thirds of parliament, whether it's appointed by the prime minister, whether it's some sort of other structure, I'm relatively relaxed about it. For me, it's more the process of how we get to the vote on it. I liked the Bill Shorten model, you know, not that it was just his idea, but let's have a plebiscite about whether we should be a republic or not. I assume that would get up if it's done in those vague terms. We can then have 
a plebiscite about the various models and then the model that wins can then go to a referendum and hopefully you've created the momentum for change rather than, you know, do it in some other way. But that may not even work out that way. That's a laborious process. I think that the moment in time for it is certainly in the aftermath of the death of the Queen, but really it's also got to be in a time where there's not such a tumult like there is at the moment because whether it's the health issues around the pandemic, whether it's the economy, these issues always move the idea of us becoming a republic into the too hard basket or the who gives a damn basket. And that to me is the biggest risk as a now Republican who would vote for probably almost any model just for the bloody sake of no longer being a constitutional monarchy under Britain. That's my biggest concern is where is the impetus to get there? Yes. So there's that. And then if you look at the Republican model that they're talking about, so what they're suggesting is that every state and territory can nominate someone and the federal parliament can nominate three people. Now, um, that comes to 11 unless there is a bit of doubling up. You know, it's not impossible. The federal parliament also nominates someone that Queensland's nominated, et cetera. Mm. Now, the practical reality of it is, is that it'll be a bit like the Australian of the Year, which comes through the state-based Australians of the Year, and then ultimately the Australian of the Year is based. One presumes that states, because they'll be nominated by their own parliament or their own premiers, will pick someone who's popular in that state. And so you wind up with, one presumes, parochial people with their own I don't want to say power base, but base of supporters and admirers, somewhat geographically located. Ultimately, these votes will come in. It makes it very difficult for a Tasmanian or a South Australian, or let alone a Northern Territorian or a Canberran to get up into these things. The numbers will tend to go with the major states. But, but then if it's suggested there's a preferential method to get someone across the line and ultimately come to a decision that to, on one level makes sense because it means that you've got the greatest possibility that you've got the person who is most tolerable to most people winds up with that job. But that means ultimately the management of preference flows is a political process. And even if right from the start you've got angels taking part in this who want nothing but for the good of the country, who are completely self-effacing, you know, who are not doing dirty tricks in politics to advance their own position, there's nothing to say that in 20, 30 years, 100 years, you're not going to have, in fact, an absolute feeding frenzy between highly ambitious people seeking power under this constitutional model. So for me, on the basis of what I've seen, and Peter Fitzsimons, if you're ever in the room with him, throws all his considerable size, booming voice and persuasive powers to get you on side, but I think I'd have to stand against him and say, I don't think this model's going to work for us. And it matters what models, because constitutions... As we've seen, constitutions build the essence of a country, uh, of its legal structures. And if you get it wrong, countries can topple on the basis of it, and you've got to use some smarts around it. And and based on that sort of increased worldliness of getting a little bit older, Hugh, uh, that's the difference between where I was just over 20 years ago and now. (laughs) Back then, I liked the idea of an elected president. I didn't like the idea of an unelected president. Now, if I got to choose right now, what model would I go for? I would say, you know what? Let's keep the title governor general or change the title, but don't call them president. And therefore, we just keep the exact structure that we've got where the most senior person governmentally, realistically, is the prime minister. And then let that person be elected by two thirds of the parliament and need two thirds of the parliament to remove them. And then that's the end of the discussion. They don't take the nomenclature of president which brings with it this idea that they're the nation's top 
boss leader, you know, which therefore starts the debate about the president needing to be elected by the people. Just continue to call them the governor general or change that title if you think it's a little bit too antiquated and call them something else, but don't give them the president title. Don't have one. Become a republic, but still have a prime minister. Or if that's so bloody offensive to people, call the prime minister the president, but still have him or her elected by their party, by the parliament, et cetera, et cetera. You don't change the political culture that way. And the two-thirds mechanism for either putting in place the Governor-General or removing them, you know, whatever their title, that is a very simple way of just ensuring that they have to be bipartisan, essentially. Or you have to have a Governor of the Day that is so damn popular that it won two-thirds of the vote, you know, whether it's one or both chambers, to be able to therefore select without the opposition. Just, just keep it simple, stupid. <laughs> or a head of state so unpopular because they've been caught out doing something dreadful or they've just simply been, you know, that in fact both sides of parliament actually get to agree on something and say, no, this guy's a complete schmuck or this woman's a complete schmuck, let's get, get rid of that person. Exactly. Whatever the model is, it has to win, you know, has to get passed in a referendum, which means, of course, a, a majority nationally and a majority in a majority of states. My gut feeling is uh, we'll be talking about it but not actually having it for some time yet to come. Yeah, I think that's right. Peter, great to talk to you. Stay well, and let's talk again soon. You too, Hugh. Talk soon. You have been listening to a 10 News First podcast for 10 Speaks.